You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Sharon Hatfield King writes, this is also back in July, but I'm getting to it now. I'm a longtime listener, but I finally have a question. Can a president be impeached more than once if he isn't removed from office? Not for the same high crimes and misdemeanors, but for different reasons. Thanks, Sharon. There's nothing in the Constitution that would prohibit that. The Senate is acquitting the president only of those charges that the House has made. That's at least my interpretation. We talked about this in the mystery of impeachment cast, and one of the many mysteries of impeachment is, does the Senate become officially a court? You know, and at different times, they did drape themselves kind of in that way. And we do bring the Chief Justice of the United States to preside over the Senate, implying that it's a court. But on the other hand, the judicial branch is separate. And we don't allow all sorts of other items that must be given to a defendant when we're talking about impeachment. Because we're not putting the president in jail. It's not jeopardy of life and limb. It's removal from office. So I believe that in a lot of ways, while there's some court-like functions that the Senate undergoes when it tries a president, it's not a court. And therefore, the prohibition against double jeopardy is not there. So I do believe there could be multiple attempts for impeachment. So I got a question from Kim McGahee, and here's a question that has been nagging me for a while, and I think you may be the best person to provide an unbiased report. We all know that one of the main reasons our founding fathers rejected rule by England was the financial drain, the extreme taxation. My question is, how does the average person's tax burden today compare with the tax burden imposed by King George on the average person in 1776. Thanks, Kim. I poked around a bit. There was no head tax, or as we might say today, income tax. No tax per person. I don't think the individual colonist had any direct tax burden to Great Britain, unless they engaged in importing, because most of the money was made through customs duties. Royal officers would be instituted at the major ports Really, since the end of the 1600s, they were very lax in the beginning in most of these colonies, but there also weren't a lot of people in the United States in the 1600s. You know, there were no more than, than two or three hundred thousand. So it wasn't a great source of revenue as, as the population goes up. The government of Great Britain starts to see America more and more as a place to tax. But those taxes were mostly instituted towards customs, so uh, tax on various imports. There were also a lot of restrictions placed on, which I'll talk about in a bit. 
the one case where you might see something that's a head tax or a direct tax from Great Britain onto an American colonist would be in it's still indirect. It would be in the case where they required that a, a militia unit be formed or encouraged it for the defense of the king or queen's lands. You see this particularly in Pennsylvania, where the Quakers didn't really want to start an army, didn't really want to fight. The royal government would insist that Pennsylvania build forts. And so the colony of Pennsylvania then had to tax its citizens to meet this royal requirement. Through the 1600s, all of the colonies had some form of taxation or another. And it was very different depending on the colony. If you were in Maryland, you were writing a check to Lord Baltimore. Each household owed a tax of some form to the proprietor. Same thing in the Pennsylvania colony. You owed to William Penn. These were proprietary colonies, and they made income for their owners. It's a little different in Massachusetts. You're being taxed by the colony for the support of the Commonwealth and, in that case, in Massachusetts, for the support of the church. Whether you were a Congregationalist or a Baptist, it mattered not. You still had to pay that tax. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. 
the Hoover Institution took a look at some of the records and uh, unfortunately, they're only going right into the, the end of the 1690s when you kind of have this emergence of America as and the Great Britain starting to look at America as something like, hey, there's there's some money to be made here. And they start filling posts that, you know, while nominally they always had the right to enforce customs, they start trying to enforce it in a, in a greater method. And all of the colonies at the end of the 1600s had some form of taxation. In Virginia, there's going to be taxes in the form of tobacco hogsheads. The state's going to be taking some of that revenue in order to pay for the governor and the government. The Hoover Institution took a look at some of this. They found taxes to be very low in the colonial period. They they did stop at the the turn of the 18th century, you know, the, the period going into the 18th century, but they found taxes to be usually pretty low per person. There were different forms of taxes, but in most cases it was customs taxes. So if you didn't do any importing or if you weren't exporting, you weren't feeling the effect of those taxes. But most people, you know, this is still a nation on a seaboard, and most people are, uh, in one form or another, uh, doing that. Massachusetts and some of the New England states did have what they would call, uh, you know, either head taxes. Pennsylvania had a head tax per household tax to support the colony, very minimal amounts. Uh, Massachusetts did have what they called a faculty tax, which is very much like an income tax. They assumed a certain amount by your faculty. So if you were a mechanic, you had the ability to make this income and they required this you know, X, X payment from you. The colonies were certainly taxing themselves. Now, I'm not in- entirely sure that taxes were the issue, as it's always stated, that led to the American Revolution. That's kind of the quick textbook history, the summary history. It's likely that we hear that because of the stamp tax fight. And that was very much the issue of a tax. In other words, the British government wanted a direct tax, and the thing that they found, they didn't insist on a tax on households, but the thing that they found they could do is tax any kind of paper. So all of the legal documents that would be drawn up by a colony were subject to a stamp. A stamp had to be on it, and that stamp required a tax to be paid. Same thing with newspapers. And uh, I think it's a lesson that politicians have learned that uh, offending the newspaper writers and the lawyers at the same time was not a good thing for the public relations of Great Britain. But the stamp, ta- the stamp tax was repealed in the 1760s before the revolution. It was just kind of the first spark. It's the thing that got the colonies together. First concerted effort about starting to boycott Britain and, and things like that. So I think because of the stamp tax and because of the tea being poured out into the Boston Harbor, we hear about taxes a lot. But I think there are greater reasons. The stamp tax was repealed at this time. Compare, for example, limiting where Americans could trade, the Navigation Acts, which forced Americans to trade only with Britain, a, a big market, but a limited one, and not to uh, trade with the other nations and their Caribbean colonies in the West Indies, France, Spain, Netherlands, cutting off markets of what people could buy. Uh, I did the podcast recently on the emoluments clause, and George Washington was complaining about his fishery. Well, the British didn't want fishing 
to be an industry in Virginia. That was for New England. So they wouldn't allow the sale of the good type of fishing equipment to George Washington so that he could use it. There was a mercantile relationship and extreme regulation going on. Uh, strictly limiting iron production, the Iron Act, something that's not talked about a lot, but it certainly limited the industrialization of the American colonies, limiting where and how far Americans could settle, no farther than Pittsburgh. That wasn't very popular with colonists. Setting up Canada as a strong anchor to the American colonists and giving them land and giving them powers so that they could be assured, the British government, that there would be kind of an anchor to the expansionist views of the American colonies. These things were pretty heavy on American minds when you start talking about the revolt. You know, it's creating a, a market for British products that was exclusive. The Tea Party was not so much about taxes. It was about this regulation. I like to look at Tom Paine's common sense as a founding document and he as a founding father, if I am to use that term at all, because it was his document that spread like wildfire throughout the colonies and got the average people in 1776 thinking about revolution. So it makes all the sense in the world that we look at that document. We don't often do this, that we look at that document to see what was the argument for independence. I searched that uh, common sense, the word tax is not used at all in the document and is not one of the arguments. Finally, I'd say another thing to always think of in assessing the revolution is that, that it is about the future and not just about their present grievances that America's took to arms and revolted against Great Britain. You have to remember that at any time in those American colonies in 1776, the British Parliament, the king, could send an official over and that official would be in charge of them. The British Parliament was saying that they had the ultimate right to rule Americans regardless of their colonial charters in any cases whatsoever. So you're thinking about a future, you know, right now as a country, and we got our squabbles, and I don't like this guy's president, I don't like that guy. But we're not worrying about, you know, the UK sending over somebody at any time, changing the rules and saying, well, if you're in this part of the country, this person's going to be your governor. And often they came with nothing else but a desire to make money from the royal job that they got. States replaced these type of governors with elected governors. So I tend to think the American Revolution was a lot more about control than merely about the burden of taxes or a particular money cost. If the discussion is like, are we that better off because we revolted against taxes and now we've got a, a t taxes at the federal and state level, hey, that's something you can debate. But there are certain changes that came from that revolution that are much greater than a mere percentage of tax.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.